So I like to begin Dharma talks with taking refuge, and you're welcome to do this uh, along with me. I take refuge in the Buddha. I take refuge in the Dharma. I take refuge in Sangha. I'd like to start with a poem. This poem is called Study Water. I ask, what words do you have for one on the path of awakening who aspires to live a life of generosity? Study water, O oh, being of ease and bliss. Study water, study how it flows unceasingly. Study its pathways on this earth and in your own body. Study how in the right amount it nourishes life, but too much and it destroys. Study how it collects and pools, how it reflects at times the entire sky in a single droplet of water. Study its depths, its oceans and rivers, streams and ponds. Sip it, drink it down, make of it a broth, a tea, a potion, an elixir. Rinse in it, wash, cleanse, and soak. Study water. It has many mysteries that are yet unknown. Study water, for it is most like the Tao, the way, the path. O oh, seeker who has made of their life a way of compassion, who guides others towards ease and enjoyment, make your heart like water, flexible and without limit. Make your mind like water, reflective and deep. Make your body like water, kind and affirming of life. So, as I've been uh, investigating the water element along with you, I keep realizing like, oh my gosh, there's so much more to this. There's so much more to this. We could really spend a year going into I mean, just the analogies of water that I talked about last, last week. If you were here, we looked at how water um, can the teachings of the river and the teachings of the lake and the teachings of the ocean and all of these are metaphors that are used in Buddhist practice to talk about the nature of mind and all of them point to many levels or layers of uh, depth of experience that has to do with the nature of experience especially the element of um, flowing and stillness that you see both in the river the lake and the ocean there's this kind of play of the one who's still and the one who's moving a lake. In Buddhism, often the image is of this still lake reflecting the sky and everything that it reflects is contained within the lake, yet those are just appearances of hearing and, and disappearing. And that analogy you know, comes back to uh, our experience of awareness, pointing out the nature of awareness and 
the appearances that happen in awareness, thoughts, emotions, body sensations, and really helping us see that we have this deep refuge, like the deep lake of stillness, of, of reflection, of equanimity, uh, that we can come to recognize and stabilize or cultivate uh, through, through our meditation practice. And so we could spend like weeks and weeks and weeks sitting as a lake and really uncovering all of the depths there, sitting as the ocean and really uncovering all of the depths there. And so maybe um, during the summer, you'll have the opportunity to spend some time with a body of water and just really reflect, like let yourself sit with the water and see what does it teach you? What is your experience? I know there's some people who in this group are very acquainted with the water, <laughs> with rivers and cold rivers. <laughs> so, yeah. and to have a relationship with a body of water, we can learn so much from it. And this is basically, like, I wanted to say, um, like each of the elements is a Dharma gate. And you can ask like the bigger question of what isn't a Dharma gate? And that's a very good question. Um, but what a Dharma gate really means is when we like let ourselves be in relationship with something, we begin to see how it is a teacher, and we begin to see what it what what its qualities are, what it's pointing out to us, what it's revealing to us. We can also see like places that we have projection or judgment or resistance to seeing. So in that way, it can be a teacher of maybe our shadow or our pride um, or wanting to control. But then also if we can let in, you know, if we let in water, if we let in river, we, we can see just all these different elements that it contains within this element, water. All these different teachings that it's providing. And that's the meaning of a Dharma gate. And it's not like, oh, you know, I spent a couple meditation periods with a river, check and move on to the next one. It's like that ongoing relationship that really makes something a Dharma gate. Because you're you're continuing to to open that gate and and walk in and be seen by, and this is an element of Dharma gate, is not only are you studying water, but you're letting water into you. And that's that's part of you know intimacy, true intimacy is is seeing and being seen. So we work at like clarifying, like getting like the floaters out of our eyes so we can see more and more clearly. That's part of what we're doing in meditation. But we're also like making ourselves more receptive. And in some ways, that can, for many of us can be the harder part. Like we can, you know, use some of the same strategies that we use in our daily life to practice concentration and to clarify the mind. But it's like those strategies start to to fail or, or need to be broken down or seen through when we work with receptivity or surrender or receiving. And you can notice, like, where do I have blocks around that? Where do I have blocks around receiving? Where do I feel like I need to be in control? I mean, I practice this regularly with the breath. 
Like where is there still just this need to like control experience? Like can I just let my body be breathed? Just let my body be felt even for a few seconds without trying to control or manipulate or change. And so that's the practice of being seen, letting yourself be revealed to yourself. And and that's you know where you know taking up a practice like water or earth can can teach us, or taking up a practice like the breath can teach us. Where am I? And you know, trying to hide still, trying to hide in an element of control, which you know, that's completely normal. <laughs> it's part of part of the path. It's not like oh. I'm a failure because I haven't been letting myself receive. But that's part of the work, too. That's just why I'm pointing it out. So um, another thing I wanted to share is just this beautiful, beautiful um, part of the Mountains and Rivers Sutra, or sometimes called the Mountains and Waters Sutra, which is a fascicle by Dogen Zenji um, that he writes that is really Im- inviting us uh, to take up the natural world uh, as a Dharma gate. And so uh, he has just so many ways of inviting us into water. And I wanted to share some of them just to kind of open our, our collective imagination to like what is possible when we take something up as a Dharma gate. So he says, water is neither strong nor weak neither wet nor dry, neither moving nor still, neither hot nor cold, neither existent nor non-existent, neither diluted nor enlightened. So it's really inviting us to step out of the realm of duality. I remember having this experience. I was very fascinated with this passage. I remember having this experience when I was taking a shower at the monastery one of my early years at the monastery and realizing that water wasn't wet. And that sounds silly. Probably you swimmers have had this experience when you're totally with the water. There isn't that need to label it. You are water. You are, and water is not like I'm wet, (laughs) right? It's wet to the human who's touching it or to the being that's touching it. But when you are, one with the water you're not wet or dry you're just water and so those those are like that's the invitation when he's like kind of negating both sides it's an invitation to be more completely in it non-dual in it not about it but in it all beings do not see mountains and rivers in the same way. Back to Dokken Zenji. Some beings see water as a jeweled ornament, and some be- beings see water as wondrous blossoms. Hungry ghosts see water as raging fire, and dragons see water as a palace or pavilion. Some beings see water as a wish-fulfilling jewel, Some see it as the Dharma gate of true liberation, the true human body, or as the form of body and essence of mind. Human beings only see water as water, 
Water is seen as dead or alive, depending on the mind of the beholder. So there's so much in that paragraph. And it's just like this invitation. If we take off that human view of water is just water, water can be so many things to so many beings. And that can be another element when we like sit with a body of water. You see how water is home to fishes and to other animals and to plants. You can see how water is a whole community, how water is teeming with life. And that's still, you know, another human view. We're still viewing it. Thus, the views of all beings are not the same. It's back to Dogen. Do not limit your view to that of human beings. There are many ways to see one thing and ways to see many things seen as one. You should pursue this beyond the limits of pursuit. Endeavors in the practice realization of the way are not limited to one or two kinds. The ultimate realm has 1,000 kinds and 10,000 ways. The Buddha said, all things are ultimately liberated. There is nowhere they abide. You should know that even though all things are liberated and not tied to anything, they abide in their own phenomenal expression. When hu most human beings see water, they only see that it flows unceasingly. This is a limit limited human view. There are many kinds of flowing. Water flows on the earth, in the sky, upwards and downwards. It can flow around a single curve or into many bottomless abysses. When it rises, it becomes clouds. When it descends, it forms abysses. Water is not concerned with past, future, present, or the phenomenal world. Even in a drop of water, innumerable Buddha lands appear. Ordinary people think that water is always in rivers or oceans, but this is not so. Rivers and oceans exist in water. Even where there is not a river or an ocean, there is water. It's just when water falls to the ground, it manifests as rivers and oceans. Where Buddha ancestors reach, water never fails to appear. Because of this, Buddha ancestors take up water and make it their body and mind, make it their thought. So I read all of that, and I'm not going to comment on most of it. But I really wanted to read that last line, where Buddha ancestors reach. This is talking about all of us practitioners of the way water never fails to appear. So just like seeing, you can take that up with, what else is he referring to? What is this water? Because of this, Buddha ancestors take up water and make it their body and mind, make it their thought. Even just, you know, there's, there's just that invitation to be a body of water <laughs> and to see your thoughts as flowing as part of this body of water. To see your body as this body of water. Home to many enlightened beings. I'm going to pick
pivot a little bit now and talk a little an, another angle on water. So in some contemplative traditions, uh, water is associated with feelings. And in that, in those schools, earth is more associated with the material realm, the physical structure of the body, physical reality. And then water is associated more with our emotional body, our feeling body. And water reminds us, and you can see in this, this like goes along with that quote from Dogen Senji, water reminds us that our, our emotional experience, our internal experience is, is mutable, is mercurial. It's, it's process, it's flowing. Uh, there was this um, neuroscientist, Jill Bolt Taylor, who, who wrote a really interesting book. She had a stroke and she wrote the book, A Stroke of Insight, really like just like from a neuroscientist's point of view, like recognizing what was happening um, as uh, part of her brain just like stopped working. And she basically was like in a meditative experience. But this other study that she did, um, she recognized, well, she studied that emotions only last 90 seconds. And that can sound kind of ridiculous. We've all cried for more than 90 seconds, probably. Um, but part of, part of what she recognized, and this is something that Buddhist teachers have been recognizing for many, many years, or millennia, um, is that what feeds an emotion is, is our thoughts. So what happens often is we think a thought or we have a memory or something in the environment triggers a thought or a memory. And sometimes that happens like below the conscious level, but sometimes it happens in a semi-conscious level. And then we, we start to have an, a reaction to it, emotional reaction to, it, to that thought, that, that feeling, that emotion, that trigger. But then often what happens after that is our, our brains, our minds start generating thoughts similar to that emotional sensation. So it might be worries about something that might happen in the future that's related to that, that trigger, that, that stimulus. It might be things that uh, happened in the past, other memories. And it might be jumping back and forth to past, to future, past, to future really qu quickly. And that is continuing to um, activate our, our nervous system. So we're having a greater and greater emotional response as long as we're in our minds. But what she noticed is if we can drop out of that story and, you know, for folks with trauma, this is easier said than done, and often we need more supports for certain things. So often I recommend, like, test this out with the small stuff, like the irritation that you notice you're repeating over and over again, or when you have, like, um, infectious laughter, just noticing, like, oh, am I pulling back up, like, that story over and over again to continue laughing? Um, you know, so start, you're know, starting, if you want to explore this, just starting with like kind of the everyday, more everyday, like irritations or aggravations and then, and seeing what happens if you, and so here's the technique or here's a, a practice you could do is just noticing when you're in the thoughts about 
and see what it's like to drop into like where am I actually feeling that in my body and sometimes that feeling can be so intense that we just pop back into thoughts and so another way of working with it so you can drop into the body and get curious and sometimes with the smaller things we can do that and you stay and just get curious like okay where is that happening in my body what is the sensation really like? Is it warm? Is it cool? Is it small? Is it like felt really deep in my body or is it more on the surface? Or can, is it like more kind of floating around my body as well? Does it have an image? So you can get really curious for 90 seconds of what it's like keeping yourself in the direct experience. And then just noticing after you do that, like what happens? Does the emotional intensity dissipate? Or do you go back into the mind and generate more and then have another emotional reaction? So we're just noticing that. But if the emotional experience feels too intense, you can drop into your body and drop like into the bottoms of your feet or, or track another one of your senses. So spending some time, 90 seconds in the present moment, you don't necessarily have to be like digging into the emotional experience so that is one way you can do it is feeling the feelings in your body but the feelings will pass through even if you're mostly focused on the bottoms of your feet or on your hands or like on opening and closing your hands or on the sounds in the space because you're staying in the present moment you're not feeding the, the the thoughts the trigger you're not feeding it with anxiety or past memory but you're staying in the present so that's there's something you can try and it can be interesting to try it like as an experiment first so thinking of something that made you angry today and then dropping into your body for 90 seconds and then trying it with sadness something that you're feeling sad about again like I recommend as you're starting this to start with like the lower end of the spectrum things just as like a way of practicing it so you're not overwhelming your system and then you could try it with joy or some a more positive emotion and just see like what's it like to generate the thoughts feel your emotional response and then stay with the emotional response instead of continuing to feed the thought. What I've noticed is sometimes we don't let ourselves feel because we think it will be too much or we've like had that experience maybe in the past and weren't as self-aware and it was too much maybe for the situation. We feel like maybe we'll never stop crying. We have this well of grief and we'll never stop crying. But the nature of experience is that everything is in transformation. Everything is changing. And this is a practice of deep compassion. So it's allowing ourselves to drop below the story, the thoughts about, the memories, the worries, and to just feel. And we have this opportunity to do this in Zazen, to sit and feel our bodies, feel our emotions, feel the fear of feeling as well as the feelings themselves. 
And sometimes it does feel like it's too much or it's overwhelming or we don't have the resource. And that's where a practice like compassion comes in. And I'll talk more about that in a couple of minutes. Um, but I just wanted to say that that's where the practice of compassion comes in. And in, in mindful self-compassion, which um, was researched by Kristen Neff, she really found that like one of the most effective ways of offering ourselves compassion that's like felt immediately is through touch. So sometimes, depending on what is happening in our minds, it's hard to drop into the body and feel because we keep getting bounced back out. And then we can get maybe critical or judgmental. And then it's really hard to be like, oh, now I'm supposed to be compassionate with myself. Like all this stuff is going on. I feel overwhelmed. And so one way of, of giving and receiving compassion is to place a hand on your heart or to hold a place on your body that's sore. And what's amazing is our, our nervous system responds to that touch. You don't have to make compassion happen. Our bodies know how to offer compassion, to give and receive compassion through touch. This like is something that we know so well, often for other people, and probably we've received touch and it just has been so healing at times in your life, perhaps. Perhaps not, too, of course. Another thing is, if you don't feel comfortable touching your body, even imagining receiving touch has the same effect, power of the imagination. So that's um, a practice of what's called self-compassion, and I love it. I find it very, very healing. It brings, and it also brings us into the present moment with that attitude of compassion, which, you know, oftentimes we're carrying or we have a habit of directing so much criticism towards ourselves, so much harshness, so much coolness, that that just like turning towards, even if there is so much criticism going on, even if there is so much judgment going on internally in our heads, just that turning towards kind, supportive touch like bypasses the mind it's more direct route in some ways towards to compassion it's like body to body right here and then we can also learn to have a more compassionate dialogue going on internally as well sometimes that's a step so in the Buddhist tradition, uh, in the tantric tradition, water is often associated with anger. And I, I was saying that with earth, like each of the elements had uh, an, an associated um, afflictive emotion. And that's an afflictive emotion that um, can be transmuted into its power, its enlightened power. So anger or water is often associated with anger and they really like highlighted that cool clear sometimes cruel aspect 
of, of anger, which I think in, in Western culture, we often associate anger with fire. And there's elements of that too, but in the tantric tradition, they really saw fire as being more about passion. So it can be passionate anger, also passionate lust and desire. Uh, so that was more the quality of fire, but this uh, kind of cool uh, cutting quality of anger was seen in the water element. And it's uh, often associated with the color white or blue, depending on the school. And when it's transmuted, when we are able to drop, and this is same as what I was talking about before, when, when you notice that there's reactivity, you can dr also drop into the body. When there's anger, you can drop into the body and feel the energy of that detached from the story, detached from the, th the thoughts about feeling that energy directly. And that energy has a clear, clarifying quality. Sometimes, maybe some anger has more of like a fiery, connective quality. Um, but another aspect uh, of anger is this kind of clear quality. So this is something else you can explore is when you drop into just feeling the sensations in the body, seeing if you can feel into like their enlightened quality, like the quality of that emotion, like when it's not being filtered through um, the mind, which is adding that level of, of anger towards or that level of resentment towards but just feeling the energy so we're like reining in that like outward or, or inward directed and just feeling the energy here present and it, you might notice that anger has this quality of, of clarity or sometimes has a quality of clarity mirror-like wisdom is something else that is pointed out in the tantric tradition so this quality of clarity like being like a mirror, just seeing everything, reflecting it back without judgment, non-reactive. So one way of connecting with that is sitting as a mirror, which can be interesting, like letting your mind be like a mirror and anything that comes up, you're reflecting it, which means non-judgment, just letting it happen. But in Mahayana Buddhism, water is often associated with grief or sadness and with the god the goddess Kuan Yin. So in many images of the Bodhisattva of compassion, Kuan Yin, she's depicted as crying. And it's said she's crying like seeing all of the suffering in the world, seeing all of the pain, hearing the cries of the world. And it brings her to tears. And probably we've all tasted that, just feeling just so overwhelmed by all the suffering, our own personal suffering, also the collective suffering, the suffering on the earth, and just being brought to tears. And she collects those tears in a vase, so she's often depicted holding a vase. And the tears are flowing into that vase, and then she's pouring them out as the waters of compassion. So there's another transmutation happening where she's transmuting that sadness, that deep tenderness that we often can feel in the heart. 
And sometimes we interpret it as different things, like as longing or as sadness or as depression. But so many people, when they feel into the heart center area, feel a kind of tenderness or sadness. And, and that is transmuted, that can be transmuted into the waters of compassion, opening the heart, letting letting ourselves feel that tinge of, of pain, but also letting that be an opportunity to open the heart. So that's part of the, the teaching of Kuan Yin, the teaching of sadness and compassion, the waters of compassion. And Kuan Yin, this is a bodhisattva who we can call on. We can call on that energy when we feel overwhelmed. Like, oh, I have to do this on my own. I have to feel all of these feelings on my own. It's so overwhelming. Or I'm just feeling so much sadness for what's happening in in the world. And I don't know what to do. You can call on Kuan Yin. You can let her, like, hold you in her loving embrace. You can ask her to help you transmute that sadness into compassion or to feel the sadness fully as an expression of compassion because that's true too and so we can imagine receiving compassion from Kuan Yin and some people have like figurines of Kuan Yin or other people see Kuan Yin as a tree or the earth itself whatever radiates or represents compassion for you is an expression of Kuan Yin. This Kuan Yin is just the archetype of compassion. So in some cultures, she's depicted, as I said, as a goddess. In other cultures, she's depicted as having, not being necessarily a she, being um, more of like a two-spirited gendered being and has um, thousands of hands and eyes and their this being is depicted as being able to see all of the suffering in the world and then respond, respond. So there's more of the quality of like an active compassion. And then other pictures of Kuan Yin, um, they're like in the royal ease posture, just like totally at ease in their body. There's this quality of enjoyment. So there's many depictions of this being. Other times there's a fierce more fierce compassion. We chant um, in our tradition that that has this kind of fierce compassion quality of just like like being able to respond sometimes um, with you know with spirit, with strength um, to the situations in the world, in our lives. And then we also have the chant of the chant of boundless compassion, which is like calling on compassion to be with us through every decision for us to recognize compassion manifesting in our life. And then another uh, chant that you sometimes hear used for um, the Bodhisattva of compassion, which I like must have heard sometime like earlier in my life, but during my first session, I was like repeating it over and over again, like invoking compassion. That's Om Mane Padme Hung, which is translation of the Sanskrit, Tibetan, of merging. Om Mane Padme Hung. And that evokes uh, Avalokiteshvara or Kuan Yin, the Bodhisattva of compassion. 